So airway management requires a lot of things. It requires not only technical skills and specific considerations of anatomy and physiology, but a coordinated team who can communicate clearly and react to a whole slew of potentially challenging situations. So this is what this best case ever is going to be all about. And it's my privilege and honor to welcome someone new to EM Cases, Dr. Peter Brindley. Thanks for coming out. Dr. Brindley, can you just tell us a little bit about your, your personal professional background? I'm an intensive care doctor from a medical background, an internal medicine background, um, interested in crisis management, human factors, teamwork, and uh, it segues into so many topics. It works in teamwork, it works in sepsis management, it works in pandemic planning, and I think today we're going to focus on the airway aspects of it. Great. And to help us out today, listeners know well Dr. Sarah Gray and Dr. Chris Hicks from previous EM Cases episodes. Welcome, Dr. Gray. Thanks, Anton. And welcome, Dr. Hicks. Pleasure to be here. So, Peter, let's jump right into the case. Thank you. I think it's important we emphasize that an airway expert is not somebody who's never had difficult airways, never had failed airways. It's probably, if an airway expert's anyone, it's somebody that learns from them or thinks about them. And so my case was a gentleman in his 60s. He was obese. He had severe pancreatitis. He presented with hypoxemia and hypercarbia and needed a tube. My plan A, plan B, plan C in retrospect was I'll get this tube in, I'll get this tube in, I'll get this tube in, which is not appropriate. And as a fellow, I struggled mightily on my own. And eventually we had to go to Crike. And it's all credit to the respiratory therapist who was the one who got the Crike, handed me the Crike, used graded assertiveness to strongly suggest that I put the Crike in. I did. That patient went up to our ICU, did have some anoxia, and to this day, I don't know how much was pre-existing disease and how much was our fumbling with the airway. Dr. Brindley, we've all had cases pretty similar to that, I would think, uh, if you've practiced long enough. My understanding is that you have developed this great mnemonic called PREPARE to help you through cases like this. So if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about that mnemonic prepare, um, and then we can kind of break it down and see how that might have helped in this case. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Well, first thing I would emphasize is it, it is we developed it. And so there was representation from intensive care, from anesthesia, from emergency medicine. And it was a common language that all people could agree on and use because each person will help out the other in environments that are familiar and foreign to them. The P stands for pre-oxygenate and position. The R stands for reset. In other words, reset the frequency of the vitals and resist the temptation to just intubate the patient right away without controlling the situation and resist the temptation to take off oxygen or prematurely life flat the patient. Then examine the airway, be explicit with your communication is E. And then the second P is a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C that is made very deliberate and explicit, not just thought of by the intubator. The A is to adjust your doses of anesthetics and even your agents. Attention is the second A, which talks about system one and system two. Basically, how do you manage your team? The second R is to remain in the room, especially when the patient's 
blood pressure drops after intubation and to review the patient head to toe. And then the E is to have an ex exit strategy and to explore coordination, handover, and a debrief of the entire team. One of the points I would stress, though, is this paper's about far more than just acute mnemonic that people may or may not remember in the heat of battle. And so, if I may, I would uh, encourage people to, to read the whole manuscript because it discusses a heck of a lot more than just the mnemonic. But that's our mnemonic. Absolutely. We'll have the mnemonic on the show notes and we'll have a link to the full article in, in the show notes. So let's break down this mnemonic and talk about the case and what we can learn from each of these things. So Dr. Gray, let's start with the P. The P stands for pre-oxygenate and position. In terms of the basics we learn, in terms of positioning the ear to sternal notch, I understand there's some new evidence about the angle of the patient. Could you just tell us a little bit about pre-oxygenation and positioning, what kind of pearls and pitfalls uh, that you see in the, in the ICU? Sure. So pre-oxygenation is key. And so many times in a case like this, uh, we will see um, people taking off the nasal prongs or removing things around the airway when in fact, ideally, they're going to turn that oxygen up. Uh, so I'm a big fan of having high flow nasal cannula on all of my patients throughout the intubation, never taking them off. And in some cases, you'll need to either add BiPAP or add a bag valve mask with a PEEP valve to really try to improve your oxygenation before you try to attempt the airway. Making sure that the patient is thoroughly pre-oxygenated just gives you a better shot at avoiding that critical hypoxia. So that's pre-oxygenation. Uh, what about position? Positioning the patient properly makes a big difference. I tend to keep the patients upright as long as possible, often until after all of the meds have been given and not lying them down until just before we are ready to put the laryngoscope in their mouth. Uh, I find it helps maintain their oxygenation. You can't always do that in the critically hypotensive person, but in somebody with an adequate blood pressure, I keep them sitting up until the very end. We also now are better, I think, at ramping patients who need that or uh, for some patients keeping the head of the bed up throughout. Lining up the tragus with the sternal notch is key, just making sure you've got good anatomic alignment to optimize your view. And so the great thing about this mnemonic is that it's reminding us to spend time on that preparation, that those few moments beforehand when you're preparing are really critical for first pass success. Dr. Hicks. What can you tell us about uh, in terms of, you know, situational awareness and human factors about preparation for this kind of thing? I think it jumps around a little bit throughout the mnemonic. And I think that's to its credit and, and, and I, th I think as part of the strength of this approach, there are human factors elements that are meant to increase situation awareness, shared mental models, preparation that are really throughout this. And I think that's one of the important take home points about preparation is your preparation, if it doesn't sound too cheeky to say, uh, shouldn't end when you start your procedure. There's a lot of preparation that goes into getting ready, but then as this mnemonic suggests, when they talk about resisting and revising the plan and then exiting the plan, that sort of sort of repetition and or um, I guess I'll say refining of that plan and that mental model is continuous throughout the case. And that's one of the things that this emphasizes, which I think is a real strength. Another point that I think is worth emphasizing if, if, if you're okay with me doing so, People may look at this initially and say, oh, great, this is another um, RSI checklist or airway checklist. One of the strengths, and it does relate to preparation, I think, 
that I think your listeners and readers should pay particular attention to is this is not an RSI checklist. It's not even, it doesn't even relate specifically to RSI. One of the strengths of this is its flexibility for preparation. And that's an important point uh, to make mention of. This doesn't mention RSI preparation specifically. As a matter of fact, it very deliberately discusses your options and your plans and your alternate approaches. And I think that flexibility in preparation is where this approach draws a lot of its strengths. So I think it's, I mean, it's, it's implicit in how the um, mnemonic is laid out, but it bears specific mention that this is not just necessarily going to help you execute an RSI, because in some situations an RSA might not be the appropriate approach. These principles apply regardless of the airway plan that you choose, uh, and they can help you prepare in a wide variety of situations. And to me, that's where this draws a lot of its strength. The preparation, the skills in preparation um, are, I'll say generic, but I don't mean generic in a bad way. I mean that in a very useful way because it can apply to a wide variety of situations. We actually deliberately provide questions that could be used during a difficult airway outside of the operating room environment. And that is quite deliberate because checklists are only as good as the people that use them. And in addition to that, we've stayed away from using terms like checklists because the danger can be that you think they're sequential. You have to do P before you can do R before you can do E. And they're not, they're concurrent. They have to be modifiable to the different situations. So there may be one aspect that you stress more. And my understanding is that a mnemonic or a checklist that poses a question rather than just asks you to tick a box and say, yep, the oxygen's on, is superior. So in fact, what are you doing to pre-oxygenate the patient is better than have they got oxygen in their nose. Absolutely. All right, so that's pre-oxygenate, preparing, and positioning. Uh, we've already talked about some of the technical things and then some of the situational things. Let's move on to the R, which is reset and resist. So reset refers to the vitals. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit, Dr. Brindley? When you go into most emergency rooms, the vitals are set as a default every 15 to 30 minutes. You are not flying ahead of the plane if you get the vitals from 15 minutes ago. You need up-to-date vitals. And one of the simplest things to teach our critical care trainees who aren't from an emergency medicine background is the three buttons you have to hit to increase the frequency of the vitals. Simple. Great. And the, the resist is, you had mentioned, the, the, to resist just getting through the cords. Absolutely. Cords, uh, cords, cords. That's uh, something that, that th Richard Levitan talks about. There is, a, and I think this is Richard's work, that, and Richard's on this paper, there is a fascinating study where they talk to ICU staff and emergency medicine staff about when an anesthetist turns up to a difficult airway, what do you want out of them? And the anesthetist assumes they're turning up to intubate. The ICU doctor assumes they're there to help if required. And it's an important distinction. And there is a danger that the ectopic anesthetist, the anesthetist outside of their natural environment, just wants to run in, put a tube in, and then get back into their operating room environment. And they're there for airway management, not intubation. And we're actually quite deliberate about using the term airway management rather than just intubation. I, I really like the, the concept of, of course, checking your vitals more frequently in the emergency department. I also find that many of the monitors are set where you can't see it while you are intubating. 
So I will turn on the audible component of the saturation so that with every pulse, there is an audible tone and it changes as the sat comes down. So that way I can hear the sat coming down without having to turn my head to the monitor or have anybody else remind me of it. So I will turn on those audible alarms for any time when I am intubating, when I can't see the monitor directly because I find it really helpful. I would also add an R. Um, I would put resuscitate in there in, in one of these R's because I am a big fan of resuscitating before you intubate, right? This is your reminder to start that second IV, to give a bolus if you need it, to have your push pressers if, uh, if you use that available during this time before you're, uh, before you're passing the cords. And Dr. Hicks, anything to add for, we've only gotten to the first two letters, but that's there's so much good so, stuff here. That's why this is so good. <laughs> there's so much to it. I love the fact that resist is early in the process because there is, as everyone will recognize in an airway crisis, part of the issue is Rich Levten will point out is that we identify it as a crisis or a failed, air, failed airway. And there's so much momentum behind that process. These procedures need to move uh, quickly and efficiently, but with poise and organization and a sense of uh, control, both of the procedure and of your team. And it is very easy to launch into a procedure without, as Sarah points out, resuscitating first or without, as the mnemonic would point out, articulating a plan so everyone understands the immediate priorities. And I think people often mistake urgency with, you know, panic and or lack of preparation. So I love the idea that, okay, we're going to get ready. We're going to start pre -oxygenate. Now we stop very deliberately and resist the urge to start to pass a tube, say, in a patient with a blood pressure of 60. And we really organize our priorities and set this patient up for success. Supplementary to this, Chris and I are involved in some great work led by the great Cliff Reed, actually talking about whether we need a pre-primary survey or whether we need a zero point where we actually all stop and control the environment before the resuscitation proceeds. And you notice nobody has said straight blade, curved blade. And that's what so much of the focus has been on, has been on airway equipment to overcome anatomic difficulties, when in fact so much of it is situational difficulties in running the team and physiologic difficulties, as is pointed out by Sarah, get that blood pressure up because you know it's going to drop further when the patient goes from negative pressure to positive pressure. Mm -hmm. And reflecting back on the case from 18 years ago, you said you tried one thing after another and what was happening there in terms of, you know, it brings up the resist of the R. Were you just trying to kind of go for it? And that's when the RT said, you know what, this is time for a crike or how did that work? And in those days, airway management was just get the darn tube in. And if you succeed, you're good. And if you do not succeed, you're bad. The Elaine Bromley example, which perhaps everyone has seen, perhaps people haven't, they should watch it if not. It's called uh, just a routine intubation. And it's on YouTube shows these human factors at play that people don't want to be seen to have failed. There is a sense or was a sense, and we need to overcome this, that any patient who ends up with a crike, there must have been a failure. There must have been a bad intubator. And in fact, even the term failed airway, there is a danger that it's a pejorative term. Now, suck it up, buttercup. You know, we have to get over that. But there, the sense that you needed to use adjuncts, you needed to hand the laryngoscope to somebody else is not a failure. 
it's inside that somebody else should try. All right, so we've talked about the P and the R, the pre-oxygenate position, reset, resist. Let's move on to the E, that's examine and explicit. Dr. Brindley, could you just elaborate on the examine part? Absolutely. You cannot do an extensive airway examination and nor should you. And one of the biggest issues with A-motor, airway management outside of the operating room, is that you don't have the option of saying, I don't like the look of this airway, therefore I'm not going to intubate the patient. And so it's a quick cursory examination. Going back to the work that Chris is so famous for, quite rightly so, the mental imaging the cognitive imagery, the sense of, okay, this might need a straight blade, a curved blade, a bigger blade, a video scope. That's what you get from examining the airway. I would like to stress there have been studies done on Aussies, Kiwis, Canadians, Irish, British anesthetists, and about 30 to 40% can find the cricothyroid. Now, I could elaborate on why I think that is the case, but the point is that you examine ahead of time. You give yourself cognitive permission to do that next step. But in addition to that, you're flying ahead of the plane. You've already done a laryngeal handshake such that you know the anatomy if you have to do a surgical airway, which is very rare, but you need to give yourself permission and be pre-prepared. I love that. So marking the cricothyroid membrane in any patient who you're going to intubate, um, there's some a little bit of controversy as to, you know, some people like to use ultrasound to market. Some people, I think Richard Levitan talks about uh, the laryngeal handshake. Dr. Gray, could you just uh, elaborate on on how to mark the cricothyroid membrane, kind of the easiest, most efficient way. Yeah, so I, I love the idea of doing this routinely on all of our intubations. Um, I've only started doing this recently, but I will now ask my residents or fellows, and usually, so usually I send them in to do an airway assessment, and then they come back and tell me, and I say, did you mark the cricothyroid membrane? And they all look at me vaguely stunned, and then I send them back to do a laryngeal handshake and mark it uh, usually with a Sharpie or a surgical sterile pen from the OR. But I find it, it doesn't surprise me that we are terrible at identifying it because we don't routinely do it. And putting that into your standard algorithm where you identify the membrane on every patient you intubate will increase our skill set and improve our accuracy at getting surgical airways in. We just need to make this a standard part of our algorithm. Sure. And, and just briefly, you know, from a human factors perspective, there's a lot to like on the E point as well, but just to pick up on one that's already been mentioned here, um, the notion of looking at the cricothyroid membrane, uh, feeling it, identifying it, even just visualizing or having a sense of where it might be if needed relates to one's sense of mental posture when it comes to airway management. And the Bromley case and others uh, do a great job of emphasizing how difficult it is to shift your plan and your approach once you're in a particular mindset. People, when we're politely sitting around a table, are, are it's pretty easy to say, well, I'd intubate and if they critically desaturated, I would move to a surgical airway. But the reality when stress and time and so on start to mount is that's much more difficult to do. To set up your mental posture to, as Peter says, give yourself permission to move to a different plan ahead of time and to have that in your head as a starting point, 
the theory goes that it then becomes easier to shift when necessary. And I do think language matters. So describing a surgically inevitable airway instead of a failed airway, language does influence behavior. I think it does make a difference what you call these things and the language you use around an intubation attempt or a failed intubation attempt with all of the negative connotations that go with that. I think it does influence what we do and more importantly, what we choose not to do. And Dr. Brindley, reflecting back on the case, you know, talking about um, having clear language and how you're going to prepare or even when you do make a move towards going for a crike, um, it was the RT who suggested doing it. How did, how did that all play out? I'm a big believer in relationship before task. This was an RT that I knew, that I had worked with, and had a strong sense of mutual dependency with. It could have been very different had it been somebody that didn't know me and I didn't know them. And then it could have become a power struggle where the poor patient suffers. So it went well from that point of view, but it won't every time. And again, going back to the Bromley case, it didn't there. Traditionally, when you get stressed, everybody becomes silent. The black box silence of pilots. Fortunate. And so one of our jobs is to be explicit and to speak up. I know anesthetists that think if they bring difficult airway stuff in and put it on the patient's sternum, that they have communicated, I'm concerned about this airway. And I don't think they have. I think they've hinted. And it relies on people knowing who they are and what their normal communication structure is. Yeah. I mean, good for your RT. You know, I, I started practicing 17 years ago and the culture then for sure was the RT never told the doctor what to do. Um, and in this case, the RT's move potentially saved the patient's life. All right. So we've hit P, R, and E. We're on to the second P, which is plan A, plan B, plan C. So you definitely need to articulate your plan A, B, and C uh, when you're organizing with your team. Uh, the other thing that I think is critical is including when you're going to move to plan B or plan C. What criteria are going to help you make that decision, whether it's a critical desaturation or an obstruction or something else. But having that explicit for the team means you make the decision to move to plan B as a group based on pre-specified criteria and makes it much easier for the entire team to shift their mental model. I completely agree with what's been said. The other um, uh, point I think that would be useful here is to understand that stating a plan is not necessarily a one-way or single-direction process. So as team leader, you're setting and identifying the priorities, next steps, as Sarah points out, transitions between plans. Um, but I think it's also important here to include team input. So does anyone have any questions, anything anyone else would suggest? The number of times somebody has said, oh, would you like to put nasal prongs on the patient because I've forgotten? You have to actively seek that input for teams and not assume that people are going to speak up based on their own, their own concerns. So A stands for adjust, typically the anesthetic agents as well as the doses. Attention, I've mentioned system one and system two attention. So system one, system two. System one is meant to be that fast, reflexive, intuitive, uh, experiential process of thought. System two is felt to be more methodical and Bayesian and analytical. Um, 
And you're saying that we should ensure that there is both system one and system two attention. You alluded to it a moment ago, but for people that are less familiar with the concept, practically speaking, what does that mean for me in setting up for an intubation attempt? It's a great point. If we start disappearing into buzzwords of system one and system two, we haven't helped anybody. What it means practically in my mind is that you need people who don't have to focus on the fact that families just arrived. They don't have to focus on, in fact, anything outside of intubation and hemodynamic management. So they are allowed to stay in system one because they're not constantly dragged out of it. And so resist the temptation to shove a blood gas under somebody's eyes because you'll avert both their eyesight and their attention. Resist the temptation to put an ECG in front of them and say something like ECG's back, it's grossly normal, move on. System two where I think it's relevant is if you're the third or the fourth person to turn up. What is often missing is somebody doing overview. So as a neurointensivist, I'm about the fourth or fifth person to turn up to a major trauma. They usually have too many system one people and no system two. So everybody's focused in on the airway breathing circulation. And in fact, even those people who aren't needed, all they're doing is sort of staring at the airway and, and mentally encouraging and saying, come on, son, you can get it, you can get it. When in fact, they would be better to step back and say, has anyone checked the pupils? I'll check the pupils. Is there blood dripping on the floor from a, tra a trauma site we don't know about? I'll do that. So when I turn up as a third or fourth person, I do a quick assessment. Are we focusing on the system one airway breathing circulation, things that matter? If not, I'm needed as a system one, and that's what I'll jump into. Have we got all of that under control? Yes, we have. Then I will do system two, because that's usually what is lacking. All right, so we're on to the second R of prepare, uh, which stands for remain and review. Now, uh, we've all seen the old high fives going up as soon as that tube goes through the cords and then everyone disappears and five minutes later, there's always a uh-oh. Can you give our listeners any tips on what to do after you've got that tube through the cords? Absolutely. Uh, so there, there is our culture of once the tube is in, you can exit the room and you're done. We could probably do a whole podcast actually on post-intubation management, but it's really crucial to stay in the room for a few minutes. That's when you're going to see the blood pressure drop, particularly as the patient is moved onto the ventilator. Um, if you're still in the room, you're there to manage that proactively. You're also there to oversee the vent settings that are being chosen uh, because if you have insight into the patient's hemodynamics, you can choose your settings a bit more carefully. And you can also do things like post-intubation sedation and pain management, which are key. Uh, your induction drugs are going to wear off shortly and you need something that's going to manage the patient over the next couple hours. I will also say though, this is one of my favorite um, Sarah Gray teaching points in a sort of half a career of great teaching points from Sarah Gray. Uh, the notion that you should remain in the room for you know, just give me another 10 minutes after you feel like leaving to stick around and do all the other stuff that's important after the tube is in place. It, to me, it's just as important as the, the, I know this, um, process isn't meant to be sequential, but the earlier process of resist, um, this is sort of bookended by the notion of remaining, which means you don't want to push ahead too quickly. And you also don't want to exit too quickly. This is also, I think, from a human factors perspective, where something like a post-procedure checklist can be helpful. So in the trauma context, we use a um, exit 
checklist when we're departing the trauma room. And that is a nice sequential. Have we got these four or five things covered? Um, whether you use a checklist or not, it's an important opportunity to review key points once this sort of high stakes procedure has now been completed, everyone's stress level comes down. And to Peter's earlier point, now you can be a little bit more systematic in system two in your thinking to make sure you've covered other bases that you've deprioritized to this point. And the only other point I would add is the second hour is review. And that's largely because airway hogs all the attention. It may not have started out as an airway issue. It might have started out as anaphylaxis, as sepsis, as trauma, but it rapidly becomes airway. And as people have pointed out, once you've captured the airway, you might mistakenly think, well, that was the only issue. So it forces you to say, well, just a second, why is this patient here? All right, that brings us to the last letter of the prepare mnemonic, and that's E for exit or explore. Dr. Brindley, you elaborate a bit on that? Well, there's definitely redundancy built into this checklist mnemonic. So we may have covered all of these points, and if we did, that's just great. But the exit strategy is you do need a way to get out of the room, which typically means actually that you've assigned responsibilities. So in other words, once this patient's hemodynamically stable, we need a CAT scan. Who's coordinating that CAT scan and staying with the patient because I can't. And so that becomes part of your exit strategy. And then you also need to transfer the patient. Handover and signover is a perilous thing. Relay races are won or lost on the baton pass. And so we have to do a proper medical baton pass. And then you have to debrief everybody because that can save a future life, even if it can't save this one. I mean, the point for me to pick up on here is the notion of debriefing, which we are, which is so incredibly important. And we don't need to get into why we all understand that it is, but we're so lousy at doing it. One concept to consider, and it, it's probably considered uh, within this um, prepare process as well, is you can consider both a hot and cold debrief. So people will say, well, the resuscitation is ongoing or I have to get back to my busy clinical work, so I can't debrief now. And that might be true. So a hot debrief right afterwards in some circumstances might not be feasible. Bear in mind, you should consider opportunities to bring people back together hours to days after the event to talk about it because people will process things in different ways. They'll have some time to reflect on the case. Perhaps there was a bad outcome that somebody's really struggling with and it's important to address that as well. Um, so just because you can't necessarily do this in every case right away, and consider the cold debrief um, incredibly important, not just for uh, learning and process improvement, but also sort of psychological safety uh, and people's, I guess, um, understanding of what happened, you know, several days later when they've had time to sort of consider the input. My only other thought that I would add to this to clearly document the airway uh, and how that went it's often missing in our documentation. We've done our initial note uh, and then we go in and intubate uh, and we don't write anything further. When I'm trying to extubate somebody 10 days later in the ICU, it makes a huge difference if I know how hard that airway was in the first place and what techniques were needed to actually get the airway. But typically in the emergency department, that's part of our documentation that's missing. So I guess I just have an ask that everybody spend the 30 seconds to write down who did it, how many attempts, what the view was, because it does help us enormously down the road in the ICU when we're extubating. Excellent point. All right. So we've covered the mnemonic uh, with all the nice nuances and pearls in there. Let's go back to the case, or perhaps Dr. Brindley, you'd like to bring in another case to try and 
see how all these points we've brought up can integrate into a real patient? I can certainly try. Uh, I was hoping Sarah would have the last word. I feel that's appropriate academically, spiritually, and for many other reasons. But yes, even- I, I can tell you all the cases I've screwed up, Peter. I've, I've got a long list of those. We might need a second podcast. Even just last week, we had a patient with cervical spine fixation in a halo with a bad heart, bad lungs, who aspirated. It's the Swiss cheese model of terror. And he made it. He did fine. We got him reintubated. There were a few brown trouser moments, but the tube was inserted properly and the team worked reasonably well. And I think it wasn't the prepare pneumonic, but it was the sense that we pre-oxygenated. We didn't rush in. We did obtain help. We had people standing by. And so we did better because we were prepared. I'm not saying the pneumonic is a panacea, but the aspects of it were integrated into our thinking. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Brindley. It's been great having you here in Toronto. We hope you have a, a good flight back to Edmonton. And uh, Dr. Hicks, Dr. Gray, uh, there were, this one was just packed with some really great thought-provoking pearls in there. Uh, we're, I think we'll definitely have you all back on the, on the podcast to, uh, to maybe explore some of these issues in greater detail. Thanks, Anton. Pleasure. L last word to Sarah. Bye. Later, Gator. <laughs> no, 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 no. Later, later Resuscitator. Oh. oh, dear. Nice. Boo. <laughs>